Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy and I'm sitting in again today for Hugh Linehan. This is our Friday catch-up, your quick, or relatively quick, look back at the big stories of the week. And I'm joined by two stalwarts of the political team, Harry McGee and Cormac McQuinn. Thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, we spoke at length on Wednesday's podcast about the protests against the arrival of asylum seekers to a converted office building in East Wall in Dublin's north inner city. So we won't dwell on it today for too long, but it does strike me as one of the more important stories of the week. And there's been further warnings from some politicians about the far right exploiting local fears. And some government politicians have been at at pains to say they want to understand local concerns and uh, address them. And today, I think uh, Pascal Donoghue and Roderick O'Gorman were down meeting the local community there. I guess we'll see reports about that later. But how, Cormac, I'll turn to you first. How, how seriously is the threat from the far right taken in Leinster House? I, I mean, I wonder if it's taken kind of more seriously than the need to engage with local communities in advance of establishing centres or, or any other type of state infrastructure, I suppose. Sure. Well, I mean, there is concern. The minister himself, uh, Roderick O'Gorman, was talking earlier this week about about nefarious groups getting involved in such protests and and ex- exploiting them and and whipping them up and uh, incidents where where perhaps uh, you know people were videoing asylum seekers walking into uh, reception centres and aggressively questioning them, things like that he, he referred to. There is, so there is definitely concern about it. It was an issue I asked the Garda Commissioner about today, actually, at, a, at an event in Dublin where they're opening a new station. And he, he said that basically what the, the Garda are doing are monitoring uh, social media. You know, they're not concerned that that things will will escalate into, into violence or anything like that. But he also suggested that such protests can be used as a kind of a, a Trojan horse for for far right groups to to get involved and push their agenda. Um, so it's look, it's something that that is being monitored, but it is it is a matter of concern, and I think we'll increasingly see issues with local communities as the refugee crisis continues and as as the scramble to find accommodation goes on. I mean, there has been difficulty in uh, you know finding sites for modular homes, for instance. There there was there's been a few that that have been mentioned. For instance, in Kildare, that are yet to be officially listed as as sites for modular homes, where where there has been concerns raised locally about about the impact on local services and things like that. So this is something that, you know, as we start to try and rely less on hotels for emergency accommodation and try to find other other ways of housing refugees, uh, it, it there is potential for tensions with local communities. Harry, how much of this is actually just an outworking of the? housing crisis, the broader housing crisis, rather than specifically an asylum seeker crisis? Yeah, well, they're both interlinked because, I mean, it comes down to a shortage of accommodation in both cases. And essentially those who have come in, I mean, there's been 
65,000 people between uh, Ukrainian refugees and looking for accommodation and also uh, those seeking international protection. And they've come in on top of an already fraught situation uh, in relation to uh, rent, housing and homelessness. So both of them feed off each other. If you look at the homelessness figures, for example, they're creeping up towards 11,000. I think that might be a symptom, really, of what's happening as the state scrambles to try to find accommodation uh, for Ukrainian refugees and also for those seeking international protection. And, you know, two years ago, uh, Roderick O'Gorman, as newly installed minister, was talking about ending direct provision and giving everyone who's seeking international protection kind of own key or own door accommodation. That's gone completely out the window now. That's not even a, a remote possibility at this moment in time. What's happening now is that we're facing a huge crisis, both in the housing situation for those who have been on the waiting list for, for many years and those who have been thrown out of their private rented accommodation and have nowhere else to go. And then we also have this uh, more immediate uh, and ho- hopefully temporary crisis where there's been a huge influx of people into the country over the past eight or nine months. And there simply isn't enough room at the inn for them. And they've had to come up with some very unusual and novel solutions in order to try and accommodate them. We, we've seen the use of office buildings has happened with the old ESB building down in East Wall. Uh, we've seen the use of old schools. Daryl O'Brien at a press conference yesterday said, said there are 35 former kind of office type buildings around the country that are being refurbished uh, and refitted at the moment so that they can accommodate uh, people uh, coming in. We still have Ukrainian refugees who are who are living in tents, you know, and look at the cold snap we've had over the past couple of days. You know, something will have to be done for those very quickly. And every time uh, they look, uh, they find that they're coming up against a brick wall in in terms of trying to find suitable accommodation. So some of the accommodation that has been found has been unsuitable. And then the spectre behind all of that, and this was clear in the press conference uh, that Roger Gorman and uh, and Daryl O'Brien gave yesterday in relation to a new call for vacant homes. There's real concern within government that the deteriorating situation in Ukraine, uh, the Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, particularly in relation to its utilities, its gas and electricity network, uh, will cause huge hardship over there, that we're going to see another exodus of refugees uh, from Ukraine, and some of them will inevitably come to Ireland. So we will be faced with a new surge of Ukrainian refugees over the winter months. I think that a lot of the action that we saw yesterday uh, was triggered by that, that they really desperately need to find new accommodation to meet the demands that would be created by that new surge. That's why they're looking for vacant holiday homes uh, around the country. What are the chances of that, the bid for holiday homes, turning up a whole new swathe of accommodation Seems unlikely. Yeah, well, they'll get some, but they're not going to get anything like that. I mean, they're trying to get 20,000. I don't think they're going to get 20,000. I think they're offering 800 euro per month. And, you know, uh, it's kind of like a gratuity payment. I mean, it's tax-free, but those who own the homes will have to pay the bills, really, unless they come to an arrangement with the tenants. And coming to an arrangement with temporary tenants like that would be very complicated indeed, you know, in terms of utilities, gas and electricity. So for most of them, at best, it might be a kind of a break-even situation. They might make a little profit, but nothing that will make any difference, really, uh, or won't make much difference uh, to their 
uh, lives. The Department of Housing estimates there are about 20,000 holiday homes that are owned by private individuals for personal use and are also let out by private individuals. And they think that, that they will get at least some of those. But I, I actually don't think they will get too many, to be honest. And then some of them are in very remote locations, uh, far away from services. And all of the people who will be coming in, you know, won't have access to private vehicles or private transport. They will be relying on public transport or, to quote Tennessee Williams, uh, the kindness of strangers. And, you know, that's that that's a big call, you know, uh, and I, I think it's going to be very difficult. So I, I think if they do get thousands, it will be in the very low thousands and nothing like uh, the 20,000 uh, that they have targeted. Cormac, won't dwell too much on this, as I said earlier, but Catherine Day, who is the head of the expert group that's advising uh, government on the elimination of direct provision, uh, wrote an op-ed in the Irish Times the other day in which she advocated you know, the building of six asylum reception centres next year using emergency planning legislation, presumably to bypass the planning uh, process. But if you see this sort of reaction that has greeted the opening of the centre in East Wall, the government has a job on its hands, doesn't it, to secure local assent and community buy-in for for these sort of centres. And that's not something that can be done overnight. Absolutely. And I mean, one thing that struck me during the week was that, you know, the, the, these protests in East Wall, they, they, they arose when, the, you know, there's talked that hundreds of people would be moved to the ISB building there. The minister said on Tuesday, I think it was, that leaflets weren't going out until Wednesday, you know, when people had already moved in. So it, you're, that kind of process is just, it's just the state authorities shooting themselves in the foot when it comes to trying to bring people into communities. The problem, of course, being that they're so in such desperate need for accommodation that a lot of these things have to happen at very short notice and the time for consultation hasn't hasn't always been there. But there's also this talk of a, a 50 million euro community fund to, you know, to kind of reward uh, areas that have taken in refugees from Ukraine and elsewhere. It might be funding for community centres and things like that, but I'm, I'm not sure how well received it will be when you consider that lots of particularly rural areas, people are already concerned about access to GPs, access to schools, school places, you know, transport issues that are already there. And then you're adding dozens or hundreds of potentially more people into the into the mix. So I mean it is it's it's gonna be it's gonna be an increasingly dominant issue uh, as we as we head into next year and particularly if the, the war in Ukraine continues well into next year as well. Yeah and lastly on this uh, Harry Leo Riker said uh, the other day he said uh, you know that communities don't get a veto on what sort of stuff comes into their locality? Nobody's got a veto on who moves in next door to them, which is true, I guess. But of course, we know that what some communities tend to do is if somebody is moving in next door, or something has been built next door that they don't like, they'll take a judicial review. And we all know that that can, how long that can take and will delay any. Uh, you know, delay the construction of any of these centres for possibly years. Yeah, that's one one of the, I was doing a preview of the Green Party um, conference today, and just talking about yeah, which we'll come on to talk about. But go on, sorry. Yeah, but I was talking about any decision that's made in Ireland, the time span between the decision and implementation is just is just becoming, you know, infinitely exponentially 
long, you know, because you have delay and objection and consultation and public consultation and then further delay and objection and then a change of government and then a change of plan and then the process starts all over again. I think what's happened here is at the at the coal face of this, there have been the local protests and complaints about a lack of consultation. But in this one instance, you know, the Leo Varadkar was, was in a way a little bit harsh, but in a little bit right as well. You know, nobody has a veto on who lives next door to them. You know, there are two competing rights here, the rights for communities to be consulted, but also the right for people fleeing war and persecution uh, to be provided with shelter. And in my view, you know, one wins out handily in that respect. I mean, I think the imperative is for the government to find shelter and accommodation for these people, because the alternative is otherwise that they're left on the street or they're left in airports or they're left in places that are completely unsuitable. There are still people who are living in tents, you know, and that is the reality of the situation. And of course, it's not nice to have, you know, suddenly a new centre open with lots of strangers living in the midst of your community. And it, it is far from ideal and the process is far from ideal. But there are extenuating circumstances, I would argue, in, in this instance. And they must be uh, given uh, uh, full due and uh, uh, sway. So, um, you know, the, and the, the other part of your question or the, the implied part of your question is that these uh, placements tend to occur in, in more working class areas rather than middle class areas. And we've seen it before that when such suggestions have been made, not perhaps with the same urgency, in middle class areas in Dublin and in elsewhere, suddenly the senior council comes in and there is a judicial review uh, uh, submission lodged into uh, the high court. And what happens firstly is delay. And then because the delay becomes so long, uh, more often than not, the actual uh, centre or, or, or proposal never goes ahead. So there's a little bit of social inequity uh, to be discerned there as well. More than a little bit. I'll actually be writing a little bit about this in my column tomorrow. But I want to move on and just want to briefly touch on uh, a subject. There's been a lot of careful coverage of about this week. And this is the trial in the special criminal court of Gerard Hutch for the murder of David Byrne. And there's been three days this week in which the court has spent its time listening to recordings uh, secretly made by the Gardaí between Jared Hutch and the former Sinn Féin cancer Jonathan Dowdall, who's already been convicted charges uh, relating to the murder and who has, of course, turned state's evidence uh, against um, against Mr. Hutch. And without, you know, wishing to trespass on uh, the conduct of the, the trial or anything like that, all this evidence has been reported on a daily basis. It is contested by the defence as to whether it is uh, admissible uh, or not. And there'll be a judgment of the court in due course on that. But it has referenced Mary Lou MacDonald and uh, Sinn Féin. And this was, uh, of course, in the, the comments by Jonathan Dowdall, who's a former councillor for, for the party. And again, I want to be careful about this and we will come back, uh, I guess, after the conclusion of the trial to have a look at this more in depth. But the evidence that's been reported this week, Cormac, has been extremely embarrassing for Sinn Féin. I, I, I should say before you come in that I asked Sinn Féin about this yesterday. I got a statement 
from uh, a spokesman for Mary Lou MacDonald, which said, quote, this is a conversation in which two convicted criminals criticise Mary Lou MacDonald for her strong stand against gangland crime in Dublin. There is absolutely no truth to any of the suggestions made about Sinn Féin or Mary Lou MacDonald during their incoherent ramblings, and they cannot be taken seriously. But they are still pretty uncomfortable. They must make very uncomfortable reading for Sinn Féin and for Mary Lou MacDonald. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, what, if looking at the coverage, almost all of the accounts of, of Jonathan Dowdall's uh, testimony at this trial so far, the first thing they said about it, they say about him is that he's a former Sinn Féin councillor, which is, you know, he is a convicted criminal at this stage uh, and he was a member of Sinn Féin, an elected representative on Dublin City Council, a constituency colleague of Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, those things are, unfortunately for Sinn Féin, are, are things that they, they cannot uh, get away from. Um, they have obviously distanced themselves very much from Jonathan Dowdall, said that he, they never would have had him in the party had they known about about his his links to these kinds of issues uh, but but that that is the the fundamental problem for Sinn Féin as this, as this trial goes on their their the party name is going to has been has been brought up uh, it's it's been reported you know it's it's perhaps something that they're they're going to have to to respond to in in depth once once the uh, the the special criminal court proceedings are over Harry what's your take yeah i I'd, I'd agree uh, with that. It's been embarrassing, especially because uh, Jonathan Dowdle was a councillor in Mary Lou MacDonald's uh, constituency, uh, was often pictured with her, uh, was seemed to be highly regarded within the party at a local level. And even he had a, a relatively high profile in Dublin and perhaps nationally as well. So I, I think all of this is acutely embarrassing for Sinn Féin, particularly for Miss. Uh, MacDonald and there are a couple of uh, allegations uh, that have been made during the course of the conversations between Jonathan Dowdle and Gerald Hutch that Sinn Féin will probably have to address in the fullness of time uh, once the uh, court process has come to a conclusion. Well look we'll leave that there for now. I'm going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking about the Greens. And you're welcome back. Harry, um, uh, like all of us, you're looking forward to travelling to Athlone for the Green Party conference, which uh, takes place uh, tomorrow. Athlone's lovely this time of year. All the better to be spending it in the company of the Greens. You've been looking at the party, uh, the state of the party as they go into the conference. What's your, what's your assessment of them now? I think they have settled down. The first year in government was a, a bit of a car crash for the Greens and uh, this was riven by personality clashes and uh, disputes over policy and over direction. And there was a very strong and vocal anti-coalition uh, uh, minority within uh, the party. But things have settled down uh, considerably. Is that because loads of them have left? Yes, some have left and then some have become kind of semi-detached because this new uh, ginger group called the Just Transition Greens was established. And some of those uh, kind of left the Greens and became involved with Just Transition Greens, which is still a kind of constituent part of the party, but it has uh, a, a status that is very hard to understand. Will they be at the conference, I wonder? They will, yes. I think the Just Transition Greens will be making contribution. It's in the programme. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of like associate members of the party, uh, to use the old golf club analogy. Uh, <laughs> totally suitable for the Greens, of course. Anyway, um, 
They're, they're country, country members. members. Yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, um, so the difficulty, well, I've, I've done a preview for tomorrow. One of the things I'm arguing is that, you know, no matter how much the party achieves, uh, everything that the party wants to happen is so long term that there, it's, it's, none of it's going to be in place by 2025. And politics is such a short term business that the party, even if it succeeds, might end up losing heaps of seats. If it fails, it's going to lose all its seats. But I'm saying that even if it succeeds in some of its aims... But what does success look like? Well, success looks like a... I mean, the, the, the first metric of success uh, is a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And um, turning that ship overnight is very difficult. We saw, the, we saw the, the, the actual figures rise during 2021. And I've no reason to believe that they're going to fall dramatically during 2022. I mean, our aim is to get a reduction of 50% by 2030 compared to 2018 values. And already that looks like something that's not really going to happen because uh, for, for all of the things that need to fall in place, some of those things can be achieved in a few years, but most of them will take many years uh, and even decades uh, to happen. I mean, for example, switching to offshore wind energy, most of that's not going to happen until the very end of the decade. I think they're going to revise downwards the number of EVs or electric vehicles uh, that will be uh, uh, in operation in the state by 2030. I think it's about 940,000 now in total, if memory serves me correctly. I think they're going to have to revise that down and take a bite of a reality sandwich in relation to that. They want to retrofit half a million homes uh, between now and 2030. Uh, the initial uh, run of retrofitting has been very low. We're talking about in the low hundreds. Yeah, so you're you're kind of, you know, 499,500 still to go between now and 2030. So that's how difficult it is. But at the same time, they have begun to, uh, you know, all of their ministers are high profile and all of the ministers have done well. I thought um, Rod Roger Gorman was very tacit and uh, and uh, careful in his first year. Uh, I think he has become somewhat emboldened since then. I think he was impressive on the mother and baby legislation. I think he's been quite good and actually very good in relation to the um, to the crisis uh, in, in in accommodation in relation to refugees coming in. I mean, he's just he's been hard nosed and realistic about it. I think he has to be uh, because otherwise you're just going to you're not going to get to get anywhere. I think Catherine Martin has probably has the least controversial of the three portfolios, but she's been a quite a steady uh, performer, hasn't been particularly outstanding. She's been dishing out kind of small amounts of money to her yeah. various kind of constituencies and intra and areas that she oversees. She's been efficient and she's been and competent. She, it hasn't been spectacular or dramatic, but, you know, she has... Yeah, she's tidy. been tidy and, and consistent. And some of their junior ministers, Malcolm Noonan, Ossian Smith, have performed very well. Pippa, Pippa Hackett, very slow at the start. And you kind of wonder whether she's going to get anywhere with deforestation. But in the last couple of weeks, she's unveiled a very big uh, package uh, of afforestation, which is worth two billion. And I mean, there's been a dramatic decline in replanting rates in Ireland. And it's shocking, really. So something had to be done to arrest that decline. So she's come with this big bang policy that was unveiled a few weeks ago, uh, which looks like it has some very good elements in it. And if it does work, it might help uh, to arrest that decline and actually get us up to the 14% or so that we have been, um, or the, the 8,000 hectares a year initially, and then higher amounts of planting uh, to get to where we need to get if we have any hope of reaching uh, those uh, uh, targets. So it all sounds a bit like a bit 
a bit done, a lot more to do? Yeah, it's kind of steady, steady as she goes um, uh, midterm. Uh, they, they, they need to, you know, they can't uh, pursue what might be described as a lemming form of politics where, you know, in, in, in pursuit of the great goal, chasing windmills, Don Quixote style, they sacrifice every single TD and senator that they have. Because if that happens, you know, they make themselves completely redundant. So they have to be realistic enough to, to, to play the short-term game ahead of 2025 to ensure that the party survives into the next term. And the way the politics is nowadays, the complex nature of it, the churn that we see in politics, it's never guaranteed that a party will survive and thrive. And, you know, if they're not in the next Doyle, they're not going to have any influence. They're going to be peripheral and they're not going to make any difference. So the name of the game for them partly has to make sure that they survive the next election, you know, relatively intact. Cormac, um, briefly, if you can, are you of the view, I mean, there's a view abroad in, in amongst many commentators, you know, that the Greens are electorally doomed and they what they want to do is achieve as much as they can when they're in office because they know they're not going to get another shot. I, I don't think I subscribe to that um, view. Actually, I think that the Greens target voters are people who are concerned about the environment, concerned about climate change and... Um, you know they're they're you know they're not trying to appeal to a hundred percent of voters. What are they trying to appeal to? You know, ten, fifteen, twenty percent of of voters. Um, I, what what what's your view, Cormac? Do you think they're irredeemably goosed, or do you think it's all there for them to fight for? Listening to to Harry there, I, I was thinking you know forestry strategy isn't going to win them too many votes. But um, remember that there are parts of their portfolio. The crucial tree vote. Well, this is it, yeah. There are parts of their portfolios that that are bread and butter issues to to families and people who you know who they mightn't climate change and environmental action mightn't be the, the number one thing on their agenda. But but if they see progress in these other areas, they might consider the Green Party. I'm um, thinking primarily of childcare and uh, the the start of reductions in the cost for families. Twenty five percent this year, I think. And looking at another twenty five percent next year, that's Roderick O'Gorman's department. Um, he seems to have have brought in a system where fees are frozen at the moment, and and they'll start to go down from next year, which will be quite a popular measure. Um, you know, even even things like retrofitting, if 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 they can ramp up the the national retrofit program. People will have warmer homes, lower energy bills. These are the kinds of things that, for those homes at least, uh, they might consider the Green Party next time around if 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 they've got their home retrofitted. So, you oh, know, come th- on, stop dancing around it. Answer the question: <laughs> Are they goosed or not? I don't think they're goosed. I don't think they're goosed, but I don't think they'll be back in the the same uh, strength that they had this this time around. I mean, they've only just returned to their their full strength of, of twelve TDs, and uh, now that Nessa Horgan and Patrick Costello's uh, suspensions are over, um. If the, there, I would say that many of their TZs, particularly in rural areas, are at risk next time around, particularly with the rise in popularity of, of Sinn Féin and, and the, the, the certainty that they won't repeat the mistake that they made the last time around and not run enough candidates in this occasion. Sounds like it's all to play for. My thanks to Cormac McQuinn, to Harry McGee. That's all from them and from me for this week. Uh, Declan Conn was our producer. JJ Vernon was on sound. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.